Luke chapter 15. We're moving along the Gospel of Luke, a little slower than the others because it's got so many unique uh, passages and important things. But Jesus is continuing in uh, Luke 15 here, his journey down to Jerusalem. Remember this. He's going down. He's going to die on the cross. He's going to uh, rise from the dead. The disciples um, have no idea all that's going on. They have the uh, Jewish mentality we've talked about many times. Uh, but he's continuing also to deal with the gospel of the kingdom so that sinners can enter the kingdom. And he is, though he's headed for his death, he is rejoicing in what God is doing in the proclamation, rejoicing over those that are coming into the kingdom. And that is always to be the attitude of the church of Jesus Christ all the time. Always reaching out to the lost, always communicating the gospel. And we'll see this very clearly in this um, uh, chapter. This is the very key chapter in the Gospel of Luke. Um, as, as we said this morning, and we're not going to belabor the uh, same passage as in depth in that. If you weren't here this morning, I would encourage you to get it. But we will see that it's really one parable that manifests itself in three aspects or three parts. Uh, all having the very key punchline of rejoicing in heaven that goes on over one sinner who enters the kingdom of God by repentance. So, in chapter 15 here, verse 1 through 7, we have the first part of the parable of joy over the lost sinners. Uh, verse 1 says, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. The hunger um, of sinners to hear the gospel is evident here in verse 1 and 2. Uh, and the first part of the parable here. Um, this kind of just gives us the, the background to it. The preceding material uh, has been focusing on the repentance of those who are hearing the gospel. Uh, to enter the kingdom. And uh, Jesus just talked about the cost of discipleship. That it could cost you your family in the previous chapter towards the end there. Uh, verse 25 through 27. And uh, though we may not experience this here. In other nations it does ex uh, take place. Uh, in, in Muslim countries, in uh, real deep, heavy Catholic concentrations, uh, sometimes families just ostracize people. Uh, in the Jewish community, if they are Orthodox, if uh, someone accepts Jesus Christ, they will uh, even have a funeral for them, and they will have nothing to do with them. And so, um, though it may not cost us family or even our lives here in the United States, it doesn't mean it hasn't and it doesn't. In other parts of the world. Because it certainly does. We have seen the most recent with ISIS over in Iraq. With the many Christians they are persecuting. And, and they're not just persecuting Christians. They kill and persecute anybody who doesn't go along with them. But um, certainly uh, Christians are a prime target. A lot of the persecution in Africa um, all throughout is against Christian. Uh, the um, enslavement of Christian women. The selling off of Christians. Um, and this has been going on for many, many, uh, a couple of decades, really, since Bill Clinton's administration. Um, but um, here again, um, these uh, tax collectors uh, um, and sinners, um, they just, they're responding to the cry of Jesus. He was in here, let him hear at the end of that verse of chapter 14. So they're, they're, they're hungry for the gospel, so they... they, they they take the invitation of Jesus and they're 
they, they want to hear the words of Jesus. I can't imagine um, sitting and listening at the feet of Jesus. The, the power, the conviction, the, um, uh, the dealing with the heart that must have taken place because he was God. Um, he not only was incarnate, but he was completely God. And yet nothing escaped him and he had wisdom that no man has. And, and he's the most excellent teacher of anybody. Um, and um, I can just imagine sitting under that, whether it be in the open air or being in one of the homes as we've seen. Uh, but they just were drawn to Jesus um, continually here. Um, the tax collectors, as you know, they were hated, they were despised by the Jews, uh, especially uh, if they were Jews because they were considered as uh, collaborators with Rome. And there was nothing worse than a tax collector. He was the lowest of the, uh, the scum in the bucket and everything, so to speak. But if he was a Jew, it was even worse because he was a traitor to his own nation. Because they extracted through extortion and uh, manipulation of, of so many. Um, Rome, as you know, would contract out the um, tax contract to those who would put their bid in. And the one who won the bid, then the territory was given to them. And they were able to extract um, dishonestly and abusively in many ways. And in fact, when uh, we were in chapter 3 of Luke, verse 13, John the Baptist, as they all came out and they were uh, seeking uh, repentance, uh, John the Baptist told them, collect no more than what is appointed to you. So that they would be satisfied with their wages and they wouldn't manipulate or, or extract or threaten or, or anything else. Um, the sinners were those devoted to sin, as slaves of sin, through their own fallenness, but as well to their own dedication to sin. And this takes place for everybody and anybody who is not a Christian. Uh, you and I, before we were born again, we, uh, uh, whatever level we, we sinned at, we could do nothing but sin. Uh, darkness attracted us. We went a certain way. We went along with things that are going on. Sometimes we said no, this and that. But uh, whether in private or in public, um, sin or sin. Um, when a man and a woman get married, they um, have little babies and they're little rotten sinners. They're just like the parents. It just takes a little more time to find out they're just like them, if not even worse. But uh, no woman has ever brought in a little saint. And if she has, the only thing holding up the saint is his horns. Um, we're fallen. And um, uh, that's why you have to catechize, you have to instruct, you have to discipline your child. To prepare him to live in society. If you do not, and sometimes we see the result of uh, homes or society who doesn't uh, uh, demand and, and, and cultivate um, manners and education and how to deal with people and how to conduct yourself, then you have a society that uh, really becomes dangerous and uh, uh, really um, disrespectful and, um, and, and nothing really gets done. There's, uh, there's fear that runs it. And so here, um, the Pharisees considered sinners as a common people. They were elite. They were above it. Um, and, and these guys uh, here in the dirt of present, it says they, they continue to come. They were continually coming to hear Jesus. Again, once again, his words, um, how they, it, it, it drew the sinners, the tax collectors in. Um, we've seen before when Matthew um, was called by Jesus at the uh, uh, custom of taxes there. Uh, and um, he gave a big feast for Jesus in Luke chapter 5, verse 30 down to 32 or so. And, um, and the, 
Pharisees again were complaining and murmuring. And Jesus says, you know, um, well, people don't need a physician, but sick people. I've come to call sinners to repentance, not righteous people. And he reminds them, and, and they thought themselves above the elite. It's sort of like the stuff that's going on in our government. The, the, uh, the elite administration today thinks that, they, that we're not smart enough to make decisions for ourselves. So they have to make them for us. And it's the same thing that happens within Christian circles if things are unchecked, if people become uh, uh, abusive in their power and their authority. Uh, when the true um, uh, position of a, of a shepherd or a pastor is to pray for the saints and to equip the saints by teaching them the Word of God verse by verse, chapter by chapter, so the people can go to God themselves, so the people can search the Scriptures and have answers for their own lives, for their families and all. And then they can teach others. And that's what a shepherd's supposed to do. And not to try to uh, have some kind of control over the people in an abusive manner or anything. In fact, um, they called Jesus a, a glutton and wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners in Luke seven thirty-four. So this is, this is the backdrop here. And um, they were complaining, murmuring literally um, about Jesus receiving them. And in verse 3... Uh, it says, and so he spoke this parable to them, saying, So the self-righteousness and murmuring against Jesus by receiving the sinners and tax collectors was really what prompted the threefold uh, parable, the three parts. Um, as you see, they will be progressive, they will be climactic in the last one, but they all have the very same um, punchline. Uh, about joy in heaven over sinners. Um, but most of the time, these are taught as three parables, when really it is one parable in three phases. Um, the lost sheep, one through seven, the lost coin, eight through ten that we'll look at, and the last one, the last, is the two lost sons, most, like, most commonly known as the prodigal son, 11 through uh, 32. But the text teaches otherwise because the word parable is in the singular in the Greek. And it speaks one parable, but in three different phases. And they move along progressively. And they hit it from different angles. And then it climaxes with the very aspect of the Father in heaven. Uh, who rejoices over the salvation and forgiveness of a sinner. And the punchline again is verse 6 and 7 as we'll see. 9 and 10, 23 and 24 and 32. And all parables have a punchline. And notice that here in verse 3, it says, And he spoke this parable unto them. Who's them? The Pharisees and the scribes. Jesus knew everything. He knows the thought of every man. He doesn't need that anybody tell him anything. And so he, as he hears this complaint, and often he read people's minds, and he addresses it to them, because they were exalting themselves above the common people, they just considered to be low-life sinners, but they were not. And so in verse 4 through 7, we have the parable of the lost sheep, the first phase. Um, a parallel passage is found in Matthew 18, 12 through 14, but it's not exactly the same, but it still deals with sheep that are lost. <clears throat> and in verse 4, he says, One man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which he lost until he finds it. <clears throat> Excuse me. Here notice that Jesus asked the Pharisees and described this very basic question. What man of you, 
having these hundred sheep will not leave 99 and go after the lost one. Knowing that they would certainly do that, it's a rhetorical question with an obvious answer. Everybody, anybody, even they would do this. That, that's the only proper answer. Um, from the onset here of the three phases of the parable, Jesus exposes the hypocrisy of these religious rulers. They cared more for sheep than they would a sinner. But yet, God looks upon us sinners as sheep. Uh, sheep are not very bright, as we'll see as we move along. <laughs> they're, they're not known for being crafty or, or, or uh, you know, good hunters or, you know, they're just vulnerable completely. Um, Verse 5, Jesus describes uh, very picturesque the tenderness of uh, a shepherd dealing with the, the a sheep that is lost. He says that when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. So he searches out high and low and he finds the sheep and all of a sudden he takes him, he raises him over, puts him over his shoulder like a soldier would do to his buddy who is injured. And a fireman carriage over, and, and, and that lamb would be laying across the neck. He'd be warming. He'd become peaceful. His head would be on one side, his ear close to the voice of the shepherd to comfort him. And he brings him back to the safe uh, uh, field that he's at, protecting him, rescuing him. Um, sheep are defenseless. Notice he rejoices. He doesn't get mad at the sheep. He doesn't start beating the sheep. Sheep are vulnerable. They need protection. They stray easily. If there's a flock of sheep and they're all facing in this direction, and one of them turns around and looks the other direction, and if he stays there too long, he forgets that the rest of them are behind him, and he'll start freaking out. That's why a shepherd leads them. You drive cattle, but you lead sheep. You don't drive sheep. You lead them. That's what a shepherd does. Too many people today in the church as leaders, they're driving Christians to gain their kingdom, to accomplish their goals. Busy little ants. No, we're sheep. I'm to pray for you. I'm to exhort you to be involved. I'm to exhort you to exercise your gifts, but I ultimately tell you to go to God to see what God would have you to do. I never tell you what to do. We don't pressure you to get involved. That's between you and God. And God will direct you, and God will anoint you, and God will call you, and God will use you, and put the church all the way it's supposed to be, and make it to be effective, rather than being... Uh, uh, a motivator for organization and, and stimulation, which is man-made. I would rather rest in the Lord and allow the Spirit of God to direct, guide, and lead, and impart the necessary gifts and the anointing for God to do the work that He wants done in His own church. That's always more effective. And so here in verse 6, it says, And when He comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Jesus declares a celebration at the return here, because he's the real shepherd. 
He gathers his friends, his neighbors, rejoicing. He's found the sheep. And then seven, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. In verse 7, Jesus gives the punchline for the truth of the parable, which will be consistent through all three of them. I say to you, likewise, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 just persons who did not repent. The 99 just persons who need no repentance does not mean that they are people good enough to enter heaven without repentance. That's not what it's talking about. The 99 has to indicate those who are already saved and they're secure. That's the only contrast. 99 is secure. One has gone astray. Is lost. God is very personal, if you note. He saves one person at a time. He's a personal God. Lord and Savior. This joy and rejoicing should be the same with those shepherds on earth. As people get saved, as God does the work through the power of His Word and His Holy Spirit. And not simply be interested in numbers. When churches or evangelists are always throwing numbers to you, it's to impress you, it's to try to get you involved. Numbers should mean nothing. God is not impressed with numbers. In fact, he, we've already seen that he says few will enter the kingdom of God. Not many. Now, there's nothing wrong to give God glory for what he's done. But when the emphasis is numbers, then pretty soon men can calculate that numbers mean dollars. And dollars multiplied by numbers means a lot more money. <laughs> And that's one of the curses of the church, where pastors and churches become corrupted through the power, through the money. And then pretty soon they're building their own kingdom instead of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. No man is beyond it or above it. I certainly am not. And um, certainly I am responsible to God and to you and to the leaders here in the church and all. And um, we attempt to serve you as open-hearted as we can and as close to the Scriptures as we can to turn you back to God. That's, that's our responsibility. Now, in this first part of the three parts of the parable, the shepherd is Jesus, clearly. Matthew uh, says, Matthew 9.36, He was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Jesus' heart broke every time he saw people scattered. There was no one to feed them. The, the Pharisees, the scribes, were not teaching the word of God. They were teaching their interpretations of the law, the oral law, the interpretation. Laying heavy burdens on them as the commandments of God. They would not lift their little finger to fulfill those themselves as we've seen. And it grieved the Lord. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke 19.10 tells us. Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd. He's the shepherd, prophetic of him. And the sheep will be scattered. Mark 14.27. He's speaking about that night when he's going to be betrayed. Jesus called himself the one 
and the good shepherd who gives life to his sheep in John 10, 11, and 16. Jesus is called the great shepherd in Hebrews 13, 20. Jesus is called the chief shepherd by Peter in 1 Peter 5, 4. Jesus is called the gentle shepherd in Isaiah 40, verse 11. And Jesus is the door to the sheepfold. He calls, he leads, he brings his own sheep in. They know his voice, John 10, 1 through 7. Anybody who tries to enter in any other way is a thief and a robber. And John speaks much about my sheep know my voice and I draw them. If the Father draws them, they can't come. And you get into this whole aspect of Calvinism and Arminianism. And, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a, a doctrine that is totally foreign to the New Testament. It's man-made from the Reformation through um, Calvin. It came out of Catholic theology, of Augustinian theology. That God predestined some to be saved and predestined the rest to be damned. You never find that in the scriptures. So Calvinism is really at the most 500 years old. Yet it was taught by Augustine from the 400s all the way till Calvin. But you never find it in the scriptures. And so people stack the scriptures, especially in John. Those that he calls, those that hear his voice. My sheep hear my voice, hear this and that. But yet, he's contrasting the Jews that he came to. And that they would not hear his voice. In fact, he said in John, um, I come to you in my own name. You do not receive me. There is one that's coming to you in his own name. Him you will receive. And so the very Messiah that was promised them, they missed him completely. And so there in John, he's speaking about his sheep. Those who were looking for him, certainly the 11 disciples, apostles, were part of that. And many others that followed him in the crowds. And so, uh, he is the one that will separate the sheep from the goat in the judgment of the nations in Matthew 25. He is the, um, um, the only one who can save, who can judge, the one who can give us wisdom, the whole imagery of shepherd and sheep it goes runs all through the Old Testament. You have the the idle and and, and and worthless shepherds of the Old Testament, Ezekiel thirty four, you have Psalm twenty three, uh, of uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Uh, and the imagery just all goes all the way through. Now in verse eight down to ten we have the second part of um, the parable of joy over lost sinners because that's what the three are really focusing on. This parable here is unique of Luke. You don't find it anywhere else. In verse 8 it says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? So here, the parable of the lost coin, the imagery now changes from a shepherd to a woman. Once again, it is a rhetorical question with an obvious answer that she would indeed search for the coin. The houses of those days were very small, um, dirt floors. They would put palm branches uh, over the dirt. Um, They would um, have poor lighting. And so they have these little oil lamps. Some of you guys were in Israel. We saw some of those and... And in fact, when we went through the uh, the tunnel, 
on the western wall all the way up and come out by Damascus Gate. You saw the lamps there too. Now a coin here that is a drachma. It was a Greek silver coin about the same weight uh, as a Roman denarius, which was a day's wages. And um, some interpret this to be the bridal um, headdress that a woman uh, would, would wear and it indicated that she was married uh, rather than just uh, one coin that was lost out of ten. Um, it could go one way or the other, but if, if we look at the imagery of the marriage, uh, sort, of like a, the, 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 sort of like a symbolic of a ring, it's a beautiful picture of uh, the bride of Christ also who is, uh, uh, who is adorned with, with white vestures because Christ has given us our righteousness and therefore we are the bride of Christ. Uh, the lamp would help her to see the coin, to look for it because it's dark and the dirt is dirty and there's palm branches in there. And she's searching until she finds this coin. Notice in verse 9 and 10 it says, And when she um, has found it, she calls for her friends and neighbors and together says, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So in verse 9 and 10 you have the celebration once again declared by Jesus. Notice the consistency of the threefold part of the one parable. Very consistent. Hitting it from different angles. She having found the coin, notice in verse 9, calls her friends and neighbors together once again. Rejoicing because that which was lost is now found. Something that's lost has no value. Have you ever lost some money? You don't know where you put it, 20 bucks or something, and then maybe a month later you're going to go somewhere, you get some pair of pants, you go, oh, here it is, or something. Or something more valuable and you didn't know where it was. Regardless of how valuable, if it's a diamond that's worth $2 million, if it is lost, it's worthless. No one can appreciate it. No one can sell it. No one can wear it. It's lost. So the joy is in the finding of this coin. Again, he's giving us the picture of joy in heaven over one sinner. God sees value in the sinner. Not because there's something good in and of ourselves, but because we are made in the image and after the likeness of God. Though we are fallen, He loves us. And He has sent the Son to redeem us. And He knows that He is the best thing for us. And He alone can teach us how to live life. In verse 10, Jesus gives the punchline for the truth of the parable, which is consistent with the previous one. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of, of God over one sinner who repents. Now, notice the second part here in the second parable uh, expands the joy in heaven to the angels of God. <laughs> we are told in Peter that angels look down, they stoop down, gazing at how God is running this church because they don't know future things they just see one thing and one day at a time and they're stooping down looking and saying wow to see how God is working the central truth again is strengthened and made emphatic 
of the joy over one sinner who repents. The woman here is seen as the church, the bride of Christ through the work and empowerment of the Holy Spirit, seeking the lost that they might be saved. The vehicle is not declared, but it's implied. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has allowed and chosen for the gospel of Jesus Christ to be the way people would get saved. Paul the Apostle in Romans 10 says, How will they be saved without a preacher? Maybe he's not sent. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. If we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth, we shall be saved. And through the preaching of the gospel that God gives illumination and sheds light, that that darkness on our life might be dispelled for that time that we might see our wretched condition and ask God to forgive us and repent that He might make us new. It is the work of the Spirit of God, yet I have to respond. Now, the first one, the sheep, he's just out there lost. The focus is on the shepherd seeking him. The coin here is, is just an object. It is the woman who is seeking but in the third one we're going to see, it's the sinner who makes the response towards the Father. And so you have to be careful of not stacking scriptures and thinking that there's nothing you can do. If you're, if you're going to be saved, you're going to be saved because if God predestined you, that's it. And if He didn't, you're going to go to hell. No big deal. That's never found in the scriptures. But people teach it all the time because they hear it over pulpits and over the radio over and over again. It's found nowhere in the scriptures. It is the conviction of the Holy Spirit that brings us to our knees and our yielding to Him that allows us to be saved and repent. From this point, He moves into verse 11 to 32, which is the third part of the parable of joy over lost sinners. This morning, we dealt with it in death. We'll just go through general exposition here. The parable of the prodigal son is unique of Luke. It's found nowhere. And again, as I said this morning, the um, uh, probably the most two known parables for the grace of God is the, um, um, the Good Samaritan. And here the, um, uh, the one that they usually call the prodigal son, this, this third one, but it's really the whole three phases of it. Um, in verse... 11 and 12, you have the first scene. Um, it's the opening scene introducing uh, the characters. He says, Then he said, A certain man had two sons. This is the eighth times he says this, about 14 times the phrase in, the, in Luke. And, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that fall to me. So he divided to them um, his livelihood. The one declaring the parable again is Jesus. All three aspects of it. We have the father, the certain man. We have the two sons. By the way, they're both lost as we move through it. We'll see this. Uh, the third part of the, uh, of the parable is, the, is really the climax here of salvation. So you have Jesus in the first one. You have the Holy Spirit through the church in the second one. And now you have God the Father rejoicing over the sinner. So you have all three uh, persons of the Godhead who are involved in rejoicing over the salvation of one sinner. 
every one of these three facets of the parable is being spoken against the Pharisees and the scribes in verse 1 through 3. Always. Now the younger requests his inheritance here. He wants to move out. He wants to take what is his. The estate would have to be cashed out, compromised to an extent of any greater interest. Um, Deuteronomy 21, 16 through 70 tells us that the younger would get one-third and the older would get two-thirds. And that's the way the law was. And that's the way it was dispersed. Uh, the father doesn't resist the son. It's an interesting thing. He doesn't try to convince him or force him or anything else. Um, he, in fact, just complies with the request of his son. In 13 and 14, we have the second scene. Uh, and it presents the willful squandering of his inheritance. Um, verse 13 says, And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and journeyed uh, to a far country. And there wasted his possessions with um, prodigal living. But when he, was, uh, when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Notice in 13, the younger son, soon after deciding um, that he wanted his portion of the inheritance, it really is, is indicative that he already had plans to leave. Because not many days indicates very few. It means just the opposite. It's called litotis, okay? So you say something, but you're really meaning the opposite. Um, and the, the plans to leave home, um, we aren't given why he was going to leave home, but certainly he just wanted to get away from the home, and he wanted to go celebrate and just to enjoy what, uh, what was his. Um, it's a plan to move far away from many constraints. There's a great protection. Um, and, and, and if you um, can remember when you were in the world and you were growing up, that if, if you had a home that was uh, um, caring for you and there were rules, regulations, there was uh, consequences, your parents protected you from the time you were a child and they let you have permission and privileges according to your age and maturity. And whether you were a, 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 a man or a woman, those privileges were different. Because everyone knows that a woman needs greater protection than a man. And so, here this young man wants to move away. When you want to move away, you want to remove constraints from you. You want to do things that maybe you don't want people to say, hey, what are you doing? And today in our nation, this is... Um, this is the way we live. And, and we, we try to put a twist out and say, well, you know, everybody's got their own life and, you know, I've got a right to make my decisions. But the thing is that where there is no accountability and there is no, um, no um, self-respect towards yourself or family, then we, we start living like individuals uh, uh, without any concern for the consequences to our life and those consequences that would go to the life of others. And we have this completely engulfing our society for the last 40 to 50 years. And we have sown to the wind and we have reaped the whirlwind. Um, all of us know of uh, young ladies who were never protected. And the, uh, the uh, number of pregnancies in the United States, uh, girls get pregnant at even 12 years old and all. And 
Um, where are the fathers? Where's the restraint? Where's the discipline? Where's the protection? Uh, it's nowhere. And so uh, our, our culture is so decadent today. Um, and, and, and it has been for a long time, but it's been progressively more and more. And so here um, um, in verse 13, he, he wasted all his possessions in, in um, prodigal living. Uh, meaning that which he scattered just threw it away is used for casting out seed. And um, uh, prodigal has, uh, the word has the idea of abandoned riotousness. In other words, without any concern, just doing what you want, uh, without considering the, uh, the consequences. And if you, be, if you were in the world for any length of time and you ran around in those kind of circles as I did, um, you know, people did some crazy things, and of course, the whole attitude is, "Oh, yeah, he's crazy. That guy, he, well, he's, you know, you know." But you look back and you see how brainless it is, how destructive it is, and you know, and, and everybody laughs at it. But what happens the years that that follow? What happens to that person? What happens to the other people around them? And so we see that no man sins to himself. There's always like that ripple where you throw that little stone and it hits the lake. And no matter how small that stone is, every ripple will reach the very edge of that lake. And so the same with sin. Nobody sins to themselves. There's consequences to all those around us. And so this um, permissive attitude um, of uh, living for the flesh. And, and verse 14, the young man found himself at a crisis. Now there's uh, difficult situations. He has no more money. All the party friends are gone. Um, he's in the midst of a severe famine. Uh, again, notice that he is the one that's put himself in this position. No one has put him there. He had a home. He had a father. He had uh, uh, everything he needed. And he chose to take his part and to move away and to just enjoy what he had. But if you don't use the things you have to work for you and you just spend them pretty soon... You have nothing, and then someone has to take care of you. That's one of the downfalls of our nation and of the entitlement of our, of our um, um, welfare program. There's no incentive for people to work. As long as you're getting some cheese and a check, and there are some people who need help, and there's, that's what it's for, and there's nothing wrong with that. But it has been an entitlement. And with this administration, they even throw in a cell phone. And all the menace you want, when you run out of menace, just call us up and we'll give you some more menace of tax money. And we're raising a nation of a bunch of lazy people that drain the system. And now we hand it over to people who are not citizens. So we're punishing the hard worker, the faithful one, and rewarding those who are not even citizens and those who are not faithful, who are not hard workers. And so I have to pay every payment of my house for 30 years of my mortgage. And those who are lazy and entitled, they just find a mortgage company that writes off 100000 of their mortgage and lowers it down to a low thing and the taxpayer pays the rest. Wow. So who gets penalized? The hard worker, the faithful person, the patriot. Amazing. And so here, this young man, he's wasted everything. He has nothing now. He begins to be in want. That means he couldn't even care for the basic things of his life. 
nowhere to sleep, no change of clothes, food, basic things due to his choices. In 15 through 16, you have the third scene that reveals the degradation of this uh, young man having lost his inheritance. Uh, in 15, it says, Then he went and uh, joined himself to a citizen that, um, of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would um, gladly have lifted or filled his stomach with the uh, pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. And so this third scene reveals this degraded situation that he finds himself in. Again, anybody can have a difficult time. Anybody can fall into hard times. So we want to be careful that we're not just callous and that we don't think anybody needs help. Sure we do. But this is a person that has, by his own choice, has put himself in this position. That is different from someone who perhaps loses his job and he needs some help or, or he gets in an accident and he needs people to come alongside and help him. Nothing wrong with that. That's a complete different situation. The word join here is to glue, to cement. Same word that is used for a man joining himself to a harlot in 1 Corinthians 6.16. He was so desperate. He joins himself to a Gentile. He's a Jew. What is he doing? He's feeding swine, which is contrary to the law in Leviticus 11.7. In Deuteronomy 14.8, unclean animals. And he became so desperate that he's hungry for the very things he's feeding these pigs. The word gladly means literally he was longing for the very paws that the pigs were eating. you got to be pretty desperate. And yet he could remember, as he will reflect in a little bit, probably the meals that he had at his father's house. An abundance of food. And yet now he has nothing. The pods were of carob trees and they're very sour. Uh, animals can eat them, but certainly it wouldn't be very tasteful for um, human beings. And so here in verse 17 and 19 to 19, you have now the fourth scene revealing the reflection of this young man in his degraded condition. Um, in 17, he says, but when he came to himself and said, how many of my father's higher servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so in 17, the young man came to his senses. He saw the air of his ways. He, he, he put himself in this position. And all of a sudden, he is down here fitting these pigs. And he is, man, he, he's, he's lusting after these, the, this feed that is not going to taste good. And all of a sudden, he connects the dots. All of a sudden, the light goes on. And this is a picture of God as he's pursuing sinners all the time. Through his word and people ministering. That when they hear the gospel and they're witness to that he turns the light on that they might see their lost condition. The degraded condition and situation which man has put themselves in. Separated from God. The consideration is in contrast to his present condition with the pigs and the servants in his father's house. Now the young man decides to change his direction. Implying 
repentance. But calling on God, verse 18. Recognizing the sin first against God, against heaven. Psalm 51, 4, David said, against you and only you have I sinned. And that's when he sinned against Bath- with Bathsheba. But remember, he killed Uriah also. And yet David says, first my sins against you, God. And then against people and with people. So we ask God for forgiveness first. Then we ask people for forgiveness. And as I said this morning, in the 41 years that I've been walking with the Lord, as I run across people who I wasn't that nice to or I sinned with or sinned against, I've asked them forgiveness when I see them. And I don't pass it up because I don't know if I'll ever see them again. And uh, that's part of the evidence that we truly believe that God has forgiven us and that we need to ask them forgiveness, allowing them to know and to share with them why we're doing this because I'm a Christian now. And I want to ask forgiveness for what I did. And that's that God will use that. And so that's always, always very critical. Secondly, his sin was against man before you, Father. He realizes the deceptiveness of sin and the destruction of sin. In 19, the young man humbles himself. Again, evidence of true genuine repentance. Acknowledging that he had uh, dishonored his father, no longer worthy to be called a son. The guilt, the shame. Asking to be hired as one of his hired servants also. Just to work from day to day. This is all right now a reflection in his mind as he's contemplating repentance and, and seeing his condition. In verse 20 and 21, the fifth scene presents the lost son turning and going home to confess that to his very father that he had sinned. So you see that it's lined up perfectly. What he said he was going to do, that's exactly what he did. And that's one of the greatest evidence. Once you're born again, you do what you say you're going to do. You're a person of your word. You're trustworthy. You're honorable. In verse 20 and 21, he says, And he arose and he came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in you, and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Benny Hester, years ago, has a, a song, and God ran. What a great song. It's about the prodigal, the lost son, who repents and comes home. And you see this old man, and, you know, we get older, we can't run as fast or as good as we used to. <laughs> But yet the love and compassion for his son, he just runs after him. He doesn't wait till his son gets to him. This is a picture of God. Or lost man. This is his heart for those who are so miserable and so destroyed by sin. How God rejoices when people respond to the gospel. What a party there is in heaven when one sinner rejoices. Should we not rejoice with those who repent? Absolutely. And that may include some people that you really don't want to see in heaven. 
That may be some people that you're praying they go to hell. Which demonstrates your heart that it's not right. Because you and I deserve hell. Every one of us. Sincere and genuine repentance. His actions verify that. Not mere remorse. Not an emotional plead or response because of the consequences. True genuine repentance sees its sin and is glad to repent. Remorse is just sorry for the consequences of sin. And though there may be tears and crying, and though there may be a time of restraining from sin, but you'll go right back to it once it's all over and you'll be at it all over again. Godly repentance. We don't regret that we repented. We're glad we repented. And so, he went to speak with his father face to face with not knowing what to expect most likely. And here again, his dad just shocks him as he rises up and his father pours out his loving tenderness knowing that this is true repentance of his son. That's the implication. And he affirms his love running and falling on his neck and kissing him repeatedly. Smothering him with kisses. This word is the same one for Judas Iscariot who betrayed Jesus Christ in Matthew twenty six forty nine. The very same word when the Ephesian elders fell on Paul's neck because that was the last time they were going to see him in Acts twenty thirty seven. In verse twenty one, the sincere and genuine repentance is confirmed by his words. So actions followed by words, they both correlate. He acknowledged and confessed his sin once again against God first. I've sinned against heaven. And then he follows with the confession of sin against his father in your sight. Man. And he had dishonored his father. No longer to be worthy to call your son. So the thing that he said and he knew and he understood to be clear now. That's exactly what he goes and he does. Demonstrating genuine repentance towards God. 22 to 24. You have the sixth scene, which reveals the lost son forgiven and welcomed back to his uh, father. He says, but the father said to the son, or to the servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. The father restored the status of a son, calls for a robe to be put on him, even as Joseph was given the coat of many colors by his father in Genesis 37.3. The father vests his authority, puts a ring on his finger to act in the authority of his father, even as Joseph by the Pharaoh was given the signet ring in Genesis 41.42. And the father declared that he was a free man. He was not a slave. He put shoes, sandals on his feet. Slaves didn't have sandals. And so here again, the father celebrates all of this by killing the fatted calf, that special calf. And they rejoice, they're merry, meaning joyfully glad with each other. The father, in that he has a son back now, alive. Repenting of sin. The son rejoicing because his relationship with the father in heaven is right. But now with his father also on earth. 
What an incredible time of rejoicing. In 24, the Father states the significance of this occasion, restoration and celebration. Notice he had turned from his sin. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He had turned to God to be saved. He was lost. Now he's found. Clearly indicating this young man was not saved before he left. I say this because this parable is always taught. That if you're a Christian and you walk away. That if you really are born again, you'll always come back. Really? This is not about a Christian. This is about a sinner who repents. Completely out of context. And the reason people teach that is because they take Calvinistic theology of eternal security and they want to jam it into the text, corrupting the text. There's no such teaching in this third part of the parable, which is the climax to the three. And so we see how men corrupt the scriptures by putting their theological biases into the text. The son expresses joy. The father expresses joy over salvation. Not that he was saved, gone away and come back. That's foreign to the text. 25 down to 28, the first part, you have now the seventh scene revealing the response of the older brother. He says, now his older brother was in the field. And as he came and he drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. This is the seventh scene. He's unaware. He's been working in the field. He hears the music, the dancing. He asks the servant. The servant tells him, probably joyous. And as he's telling him about his brother and his father, he is just blowing a stack. He's not happy. Things were not right between these two brothers for a long time because this word for anger is that smoldering anger that just flies out like a volcano. Once you hear the name, once you imagine what went on or whatever it is. The eighth scene is there in the second part of verse 28 down to 30. It reveals the resentful attitude of the older Brother, therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. And he answered and said to his father, um, Lo, these many years I have been um, serving you and never transgressed your commandments at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as your son, this son of yours came, who has devoured his livelihood or your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. So now his bitterness for his, his brother and his resentment now is carried over to his father. His father is, is trying to entreat him here. 
pleading with him repeatedly, coming alongside to have some compassion, to rejoice with his brother. And yet, all he does is he really is reproving his father here. The contrast here is between the compassion and the loving tenderness of the father, which is really that of God in heaven towards the sinner, and the pharisaical, hard-hearted attitude of the older son who represents the Pharisees and the scribes over Jesus saving sinners. Because the, the threefold aspect of this parable is against them in verse 1 through 3. And so he expresses his arrogant displeasure with his father in 29, reminding how loyal he was and faithful. He obeyed him, but he, he considers himself as a servant. He's actually exalting himself. He expresses his disappointment with both his father and his brother in verse 30, that bitterness, this son of yours came. Wow. In 31, down to 32, you have the ninth and last scene revealing the wrong attitude and the words of this older brother. He says, and he said to him, Son, this is the Father speaking, You are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad. For your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. His father reproves him and rightly so. Pointing first of all to his blessed state as the older son. He's with the father always. He has everything and anything he wants. Besides that, he still has his portion of the inheritance, two-thirds. The return of the younger brother has not affected his inheritance at all, nor will it. So as I said this morning, it's not a matter of money at this point. It's a matter of the heart. The heart is what's always our problem. The word falls on good ground or on bad ground. It's always the heart where the word is sown. And if we harden our heart, then we can't allow God work in our lives. If we're full of bitterness, then it'll taint everything that we see and touch. If we have unforgiveness, it'll hurt us more than anybody else. Because the one I don't forgive, they don't know anything about it, but I'm being, I'm eating myself up. It's a deception of our flesh, of the enemy, and of sin. The older brother again, the perfect picture of the Pharisees and scribes. Kind of like Jonah, as I pointed out this morning, where God finishes the book of Jonah. Was, is it not right that I should forgive? I've got 150,000 some kids here with, that, that, that are innocent and they're, they're, they're not of age. And should I not forgive them? Sure, I should. The problem is the heart of Jonah. He didn't want the Ninevites to be saved. He hated them. The same here with the older son. He's self-righteous. He's self-centered. 
And um, he's uncompassionate towards his brother. And so the father points out the most important priority. His brother was spiritually alive now. He was dead before. Destroyed. Heading for eternal destruction. But now he is saved. The two sons were lost within the father's house. The one that left returned saved. The one that never left remained lost. But both sons exercised their will and their choice. God is not the one who decided the one to be saved and the other not. They both had equal opportunity. God loves them both. God died for both. One chose to receive. The other one chose to reject. And so, this parable speaks to us as Christians. How A strong warning. In Matthew 18, Jesus speaks about if we can't forgive our brothers, our trespass against us, then neither will God forgive us. For fellowship, very important. And that punchline in that parable of that uh, wicked servant who didn't forgive um, the guy who owed him pennies. It, it, it jumped off the thing, the question where Peter says, how long shall I forgive my brother? Seven times? Jesus said, no, seven times, 70. 490 times. <laughs> and so, um, unforgiveness is very, very, very destructive. And certainly a self-righteous attitude um, is uh, a very callous state that uh, will not cultivate the Word of God. And so it's a strong warning to every believer who is in the Father's house. And uh, the punchline through these three full parables is that there's joy in heaven when one sinner repents. And that should be our attitude and that should be our joy. Father, we thank you for your grace and love, your goodness, and we pray that you just deal with all of our hearts. We thank you, Lord. Pray for every person here. Thank you for bringing them. And Father, as they've uh, looked to you, and Father, as you've dealt with each of us, Lord, in areas that we need to hand over to you, that, Lord, um, we might um, decrease and you might increase in our life. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. You might be looking over the Internet. If you're there, no matter where you're at, if you believe that Jesus is God who became man, died for your sins and rose from the dead, then you can call upon Him and He will forgive you of your sins and He will give you eternal life and He will make you His child by grace through faith because you're trusting His righteousness, what He did for you on the cross and as He rose from the dead to secure that salvation for you if you will receive it. So if you want to be born again and repent of your sins, this is your prayer to the Lord. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name. Amen.